I forgot to mention last week. Uh, many of you have heard of one of the righteous Jewish kings whose name was Chizkiyo HaMelech. Now in prior years, this was very familiar to Mayanot students because the old Mayanot building was located on Rechav Chizkiyo HaMelech. So these people knew the street. Chizkiyo HaMelech was such a righteous person that the Gemara says if the generation would have been worthy, he would have been the Mashiach of the generation. Chizkiyo HaMelech, Ezekiel, Ezekiah. Now the Mishnah says in Maseches Pesachim that there were certain things Chizkiyo did that the sages approved of, and certain things he did that they thought was not correct. And we're not going to go over all of them, but one of them is very interesting. One of the things that he did that the Chachamim said was a good idea was he took a book that was called Sefer Refuos and he hid it. He, he withdrew it from circulation. But he said Sefer was an ancient book that explained all the herbs and what they were good for medically. In other words, how to cure a headache and heart problems and high blood pressure. This was like a physician's desk reference that described all the medications. And Chizkiyo took it away from people. And the sages said, good idea. Problem is, why was it a good idea? What was bad about the Sefer Refuais that Chizkiyo withdrew it from circulation? So the Gemara does not explain the reason. The Gemara just records the fact. It does not give the reason. So listen to this interesting machlokas between Rashi and the Rambam as to how to explain what was so good about taking away Sefer Refuas. Rashi says the problem was people were relying so much on medicine and doctors that they were not praying to Hashem. And they were not feeling that Hashem was the source of healing. So Chizkiyo took away access to medical information to force people to turn to Hashem in prayer. The Habdiel, that sounds kind of like the Christian science philosophy of not going to doctors, just relying on God, uh, forget about medicines. Now this is what Rashi says. The Rambam doesn't like that explanation, and you could probably guess why the Rambam wouldn't like that explanation. The Rambam himself, not only a great, great philosopher and posek, decider of Jewish law, the Rambam was also a great physician. The Rambam was the caliph, the head, the kind of the king of the country, was the personal physician to the king and the entire royal court. He was like the president's doctor, the king's doctor. And the Rambam says, any person who says, I'm not going to take medicine because God will heal me, is like a person who says, I'm not going to eat food because God will feed me. Yeah, God feeds you and God gives you refuah, but you have to utilize the means that he set aside for this. So the Rambam says it's ridiculous to say Yo withdrew the book of refuah. People shouldn't use medications and thereby be forced to go to God would be inconsistent with what is called the hishtadlus. Hishtadlus means the human effort that is needed to always receive HaKadosh Baruch Hu's brachos. It's like the old joke they say about the person that is caught in a, a flash flood and uh, he declines all offers of rescue. A boat comes by, says, I don't need you, I believe in God. And then he climbs up to the second story. I don't, you know, and the, the, the helicopters come and the rope ladders come. And he declines every single offer of assistance because he says, Hashem will take care of me. 
And in the last moment, when all hope is gone, he cries out, Hashem, why did you abandon me? I would have been your faithful servant. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu answered, I tried to save you five times. Who do you think sent the boat? And who do you think sent the rope ladder? And who do you think sent the, uh, the, the fireman department or whatever it would be? That's Hashem. That's how Hashem operates usually, once in a while. Hashem splits the Red Sea. Hashem splits the ocean. Hashem does a supernatural miracle. But most of the time, the Yeshua that comes from Hashem will come through the invocation of natural means. In fact, according to Halacha, you're not supposed to rely on miracles. You're not, even if you have a Muna, you're not supposed to say, Hashem will miraculously heal me. Of course, Hashem could do that. But you're mechoyev to utilize normal hishtadlis. So because of this, the Rambam does not like Rashi's explanation. So the Rambam gives his own explanation. Why did Chizkiyo take away the book of Rafua? So listen to this. This is Mamish, a very doctor-oriented explanation. Because lay people were using the book and not going to doctors. Yeah. And they were self-medicating. And uh, the Rambam writes, many, many medicines, if you take them in the wrong dosage or for the wrong reason, not only will they not heal you, but they will harm you. So, Mamish, this is such an interesting machlokas, because these are 180 degree opposite interpretations. According to Rashi, we want to get you out of the medical system. So you turn to Hashem. According to the Rambam, we want to get you into the medical system. And you shouldn't be a self-medicator. You, know, you shouldn't be your own doctor. Uh, indeed, uh, what the Rambam is saying is actually born out today. Because today, you know, when I was growing up, you know, many, many centuries ago, uh, you know, people knew very little. If you were not a doctor, you knew very little about disease or treatment. So the doctor was like God. Whatever the doctor said, you followed. But the doctor never explained it. Uh, because he didn't have to explain it. You, know, you don't understand, this is the way it is. Today it's very different, uh, primarily because of the internet. Uh, the internet has a huge, huge uh, reservoir of medical information. A lot of it is junk, and a lot of it is good. Uh, so now patients can come to doctors with hundreds of pages of information about how they should be treated. And doctors are actually very frustrated sometimes because patients don't know if you're not uh, medically trained, you may not know how to evaluate information. So sometimes doctors say too much information is a bad thing, uh, simply because, well, actually, because maybe it's not information, maybe it's false. Meaning the concept that, uh, you know, first of all, there's a gazillion conspiracy theories out there, and whatever, whatever it is, depending on your orientation. So the Rambam's point basically is that there is a danger in patients taking too much control over their treatment. And therefore, he took away the book of Rafuel so people will go to doctors. So it's very, very fascinating. Rashi seemed to have followed the view that the more righteous you are, the less you're connected to medical profession. You just look for Hashem to help you. The Rambam says, no, seeking medical treatment is an obligation. And uh, the idea of getting rid of the book of Rafuos is because people were not seeking the professional help uh, that they need. So. What is very fascinating about this is this is such a good example of how the same passage, the same statement in the Mishnah can be interpreted in two opposite ways. And that's an interesting facet of the Torah, that sometimes the same bit of information can lead to two totally opposite conclusions, which is one of the reasons why Limud HaTorah is uh, so fascinating. Uh, nevertheless, the halacha is like the Rambam here. A person is obligated to seek medical treatments. Of course, of course, of course, 
The most important thing is prayer, tefillah, and staka and shuvah. Of course, that is what enables everything to happen. Uh, but side by side with that, we are mechuyiv to engage in what is called reasonable ishtadlas. And as I mentioned last week, uh, halacha does not favor Western medicine over Eastern medicine or vice versa. Halacha says you must seek the treatment that seems to work. So whatever works uh, will be legitimate unless, unless, there's one exception, unless the treatment is connected to idolatry. And then you have a certain problem. Uh, if the treatment would be some type of idolatrous worship, then the halacha is you must give your life before you participate. So even if a person were to die, they could not participate in some type of idolatry. But as I mentioned, most Eastern medicine techniques, even if they have their origin in Eastern religions, are now separate. Acupuncture may have had some origin in Hinduism or whatever. Does not affect the way it's done now. Now it's simply done as a professional service, so it would not be tainted by Avoda Zora. But religious rites and bringing up the dead and all those things, those are things you don't do. Okay, so that's uh, one thing I wanted to, to share with you. Okay. Now, obviously, uh, as you know, pikuach uh, nefesh is uh, such an important principle, the saving of a life, uh, that we violate the Shabbos, we violate Yom Kippur, we violate, I shouldn't even use the word violate because it's not a violation, but we break what would normally be the halacha in order to save a life. And uh, so that raises some interesting questions uh, in modern medicine. Let me first talk about the opposite, and that is suicide. Let's talk about the halachas of suicide a little bit. Uh, and that is, there is a movement throughout the world right now to allow for what is called assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide. That actually means, under different conditions, you could go to a doctor, and a doctor will give you a prescription for medication that will kill you, and you'll even be given instructions how to take your life. Uh, this is called assisted suicide. Uh, in at least some states in the United States, it is legal. In Oregon and the state of Washington, again, I mean, there, I mean it doesn't mean any guy can just come in and say, I want a suicide pill, but you know, if... Uh, They're dying anyway? Yeah, yeah, usually they have a terminal condition. You, usually they're already going to die, and uh, they've been treated for depression and the like, but at the end of the day, uh, in Oregon and Washington, there is uh, uh, a type of procedure called an assisted suicide. In fact, people are even making parties over this. They'll send out, it sounds a little macabre, they send out invitations. Uh, like, this is gonna be my last night on Earth, you know, let's spend it together with the people I love, and they play music, and they have food, and they drink, and they joke around, and they reminisce. And then, I mean, it sounds like bizarre, at the strike of midnight, you know, the person, you know, takes their pills, takes their water, lies down, is surrounded by their friend, you know, and then dies. You know, that, this is what it is. So it's in, in Oregon and Washington, it's legal. Uh, in the Netherlands and in Scandinavian countries, it is legal. Doctor, are allowed to prescribe that? Huh? I'm talking about legal. I'm not saying halakha. Yeah, I'll get to the halakha. Huh? Yeah, these are people, again, these are people that are terminally ill, that are suffering, uh, you know. There are conditions. I'm not giving you all the conditions, but there is a concept. How people, like, get their hands on, like, this pill without that? Well, well, first of all, I guess, first of all, people have been committing suicide by, by uh, overdosing on medication for a hundred for years, for a thousand years. I mean, any, any prescription drug, you can take aspirin. 
and you swallow a bottle of aspirin, uh, there's a very good chance uh, that you might die unless they pump out your stomach. Uh, People are poisoning themselves. Are po are po yeah, there are many, many ways you can kill yourself. But the, but the advantage, if you want to kill yourself, the advantage of having a doctor is the doctor can prescribe it in a way that you're not going to suffer pain. Right, like you take a bottle of whatever you, yeah. regular pills, you're going to be in a lot of pain. You'll have a lot of side effects and, you, and it may not work. It may not kill you. It may not kill you. That's right. You listen, people can go into a bathtub and cut their veins. I mean, there are many uh, people can. Well, that's painful. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Right. So, this is a, a way of taking your life in a way that supposedly uh, does not cause uh, a lot of pain. So, let me talk a little bit about the halachos of suicide. And that is, it's very, very clear, according to halacha, that suicide, taking your own life, is the same as murder. Right. The, the Ten Commandments say. You're not allowed to murder. Uh, well, so taking your life is also a form of murdering, meaning we don't accept the premise because it's me. I can do to me whatever I want because that's predicated on the thought that I own my body. If I own my body, I can do to it what I want. But I don't own my body. I think last week I mentioned the Merchant of Venice and all that, that my body belongs to God and the same way I cannot cause your soul to over. By the same token, I would not be able to kill myself. In fact, in some ways, the laws against suicide are even stricter than murder. A suicide who acts intentionally, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, is called ma'abed atzmo ladas. He intentionally destroys himself. A ma'abed adam atzmo ladas is said, does not have a share in the world to come, Unless he did shiva last month, and a family does not sit shiva for him, and he is not buried in the regular part. If you took away his own life, you do not sit shiva for him. Say again. If you took away his own life, you don't sit shiva. That's for that's him. correct. That's correct. I but did not. No, no. But again, but you have to wait till I finish. But I'm giving you the basic halacha, then I'll show you how we qualify it. The halacha is you don't sit shiva for him, and he is not buried. In the regular part of a Jewish cemetery, he's buried in like a separate uh, distance. This doesn't necessarily apply to people who, are, who have like really severe depression. Right, so, so let me, yeah, again, you gotta say, I'll get to it, that, that's correct. Okay, so, uh, so, so, so there are three consequences to suicides. No olam haba, which is really the worst one. No sitting shiva. And no regular burial in a Jewish cemetery. By the way, as an aside, I have to say this, although it's totally not relevant. I'm sure all of you have heard that if a person gets a tattoo, they are not buried in a Jewish cemetery. This is the teaching of Judaism that everybody in the world has heard of, and it's totally not true. It's totally not true. Was it never true? It was never true, no. Uh, I don't know where it started. Uh, now, there is a sin. No, it is a sin. A person should not get a tattoo. Now, if you already have a tattoo from before you became religious, Interestingly, halacha does not require that you remove it. It's a good idea, I think, if it's possible, just because you want to associate uh, with religious Jews. But halacha, the halacha is not having a tattoo. The halacha is getting the tattoo. Mm -hmm. So if you have it, there is no chiv to remove it. But there's no question that getting a tattoo is not as, is not as serious a sin as violating Shabbos or uh, eating on your eating tray for not keeping Yom Kippur. Now, a person who violates Shabbos is buried in a Jewish cemetery. 
So a tattoo is not going to be worse than that. So if uh, your mom is trying to scare you not to get a tattoo by saying uh, you're not going to be buried in a Jewish cemetery, she'll have to find another way to scare you. Maybe, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, one is, that one is not, is not accurate. But again, it, it is forbidden to have a tattoo. I'm not, not to have to get a tattoo, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not worse than many more serious averes. But a suicide is so serious that we don't bury you with the regular part of the cemetery. Now, there is a huge catch-22, and that's what you pointed out, and that is the rule that the suicide doesn't have a share in Olam Haba and, and we don't sit shiva for him is only if it was a premeditated decision that was made without Ill mental illness or depression. Uh, if a person took his life because he was laboring under a great depression or great physical pain, they are not responsible. They're considered to be temporarily insane. And they are not responsible for their actions. Now, again, be sure you understand what I'm saying. This is not legitimating the action. The action is still sinful. It is against halacha. We're not saying if you're suffering under great pain, you can commit suicide. We're not saying that. I'll get to that a little later. We are saying that if you committed suicide under those circumstances, you were not of sound mind and body, and as a result, you are not responsible. We then go around in a catch-22 and we say, oh, since nobody would commit suicide unless they were suffering great depression, then definitionally, we all know that it was a truly voluntary act. So the bottom line is the opposite of the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch lays down a rule, intentional suicides, no shiva, no burial, or no Jewish burial, no olam haba. We will actually sit shiva for the person, and we will bury him in a Jewish cemetery because we will almost always assume that this was a product of severe depression. So, in effect, you could almost—I mean, I, I, listen, I was a rabbi for, for, for many years of the show, and unfortunately, um, I had uh, family. I mean, none of my members committed suicide. My sermons weren't that bad, uh, but but they had they had extended family members who And every single case, uh, I always advised the family to sit Shiva and say Kaddish and observe the morning rituals. Because, I mean, it's a matter of common sense. People, commit people don't commit suicide when life is so great and they're happy. Shiva. They commit suicide because of because of depression. So they were depressed and committed suicide. You do keep Shiva. That's correct. That's correct. Um, burying the burial. That's correct. And let's say you don't know. So that's what I'm saying. If you don't know, you assume it was probably because of that. Because people who are happy and well-adjusted tend not to take their own lives. Right? So it's almost a definitional catch-22 that, yeah, you have a thing called intentional suicide, but you never, you never have that case. So in a sense, therefore, if God, again, I hope that none of you will ever confront it, but if, if, if you ever have a situation of a, of a suicide, um, you know, by and large, uh, Shiva will be there and it will be buried in the Jewish cemetery. And it's only Shemot, but we will certainly share in the uh, in the world uh, in the world. But I to point out that does not mean it's permitted. It's still a sin, but it's a sin for which a person is not fully responsible because they are not of sound minds. And Hashem understands when we act out of severe pain, whether it's physical pain or whether it's emotional pain, that we're not always going to be fully accountable. Uh, for what we did. Do you want to say? Yeah, I just have a question about yeah. Um, Shiva. Yeah. Why would we ever be told not to sit Shiva for someone if Shiva is supposed to be more about the morning process than about 
the person dies well, or the people that uh, Yeah, you know, you're raising a good point, but the truth is Shiva is, is a very multifaceted thing. Part of Shiva is to give homage and honor to the dead person. So let's say even sometimes a person can lose a relative that they absolutely hate and they're totally estranged from. It might even be a parent or whatever, whatever, a sibling or whatever it might be. So Shiva basically says, whatever you're feeling, you honor their memory by sitting Shiva. So there is not some evil thing, so they're not entitled to that homage, they're not entitled to that, uh, to that honor. Um, okay. Now again, in fact, in fact, it's interesting that there are many poskim who say, again, I'm not giving you this lahalacha, that if somebody intermarries a Jewish person who marries a non-Jew, there are some opinions, some opinions, not, not, not all, that say you don't sit shiva for that, because that's kind of betraying the Jewish people. They say uh, the prevailing custom is we do sit shiva for that uh, in this day and age. Again, let me explain why history makes a difference here. In the olden days, you know, even 100 years ago, for a Jew to marry outside of Judaism was, was mamash a betrayal. Jews never did it. And if you did it, you were spitting at the Jewish people, and therefore we didn't honor you when you died. Today, tragically, it's a very different situation. Today, tragically, at least one out of two marriages with a Jewish partner are to a non-Jew. And in some places, it is seven out of 10. Do you know that in some communities, 70% of marriages with a Jewish person are with a non-Jew. 70%. Now, you have to understand that that is a tragedy. That is a great, great tragedy. But it changes the halacha in a more lenient way. Because if it used to be the case that I was spitting at the Jewish people by marrying outside the faith, that's much less true today. Because I, what do you mean? The rabbi did it. Whatever the reform rabbi. Everybody, you know, everybody does it. So in a sense, as, as tragic as intermarriage is, and it is, it is a tragic situation, it's no longer a sign of the disrespect to, to the Jewish people that it used to be. And as a result, we would poskin that we would sit shiva, even for an intermarried couple. Uh, of course, where, where you get into real problems is how do you bury them? I mean, uh, again, I realize some of this might, might be some delicate. I apologize if, uh, if I may be touching on uh, personal issues, but it is an issue because let's say you have a Jewish man married to a non-Jewish woman or vice versa. Okay, so they're married, intermarriage. There was no conversion. So it's an intermarriage. Uh, so the Jewish, let's, let's say it's a Jewish man just to illustrate. So the Jewish man dies. So I told you that today we'll sit shiva for him, we'll say Kaddish for him, we'll bury him in a Jewish cemetery. We'll do that. Even though a hundred years ago they wouldn't have done it. So the question is though, can his, can his non-Jewish spouse be buried next to him? Because there is a, a fairly strict rule that we only are supposed to bury Jews in the Jewish cemetery, and you're not supposed to bury Jews and non-Jews in the same cemetery. It's a difficult issue. Now, now again, obviously, in centuries that under the auspices of uh, the Reform or conservative movement, that will be in. But uh, if the cemeteries are following the law, I'm fairly strict about burying a, a Jew with a non-Jew. So it may be, I'm just pointing it out, that one would have discussed the facility with the Jews, but after they could not be buried together. By the way, uh, this is also a Shiloh that Israel is facing now in military centers. Uh, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe you've seen it, maybe you've been there. On Mount right? that's the last stop of the light rail. So there's a big, big military, military national military, like Arlington National Cemetery. First of all, it's the main uh, military cemetery for the soldiers. 
the right in Israel's wars. Now, obviously, most of the soldiers are Jewish, but not all of the soldiers. There are soldiers who are not Jewish. Now, Arabs are not allowed to fight the Arabs. There are Druzes, really, the, Dru the Druzes who are in the army. There are also uh, people who may have converted reform in the United States. So, halakhically, they're not Jewish, but uh, they made Aliyah and they joined the army. So, on one hand, to tell, a to tell the family of a person who died in Israel's wars that you cannot be buried in this military cemetery is painful, humiliating, and degrading. On the other hand, you're not supposed to bury non-Jews and Jews in the same cemetery. <laughs> so, this is actually an issue right now that uh, the Israeli government is working to figure out how can you make everybody happy. Uh, so non-Jews are going to be buried in, in, the same, in the same cemetery. Okay. Uh, so those are just some things to, to be aware of. Uh, by the way, since we're talking about cemeteries, again, I'm, I'm going out of my topic, but I'll mention things as they come to me in my stream of consciousness. Uh, let's talk about, I'm, I'm going to get back to suicide, because suicide is our topic for today. But let me detour for a moment and talk about cremation. I had mentioned, right, that uh, according to the Shulchan Aruch, we don't sit Shiva for a suicide, but practically we do. I had mentioned originally they didn't sit Shiva for an intermarriage. Practically, we do, because changes. So let me give you a third case where the halacha says you're not supposed to sit Shiva, and we'll see if that practically changes. That is cremation. Cremation is when a body is burnt. Uh, it's a lot cheaper than burial. I mean, the, to, tell you, to tell you the truth, the big attraction of cremation is price. Uh, funerals are expensive. Uh, even an Orthodox funeral, which is no frills, plain pine box, very simple coffin, costs uh, around seven or eight thousand dollars at a minimum. Cremation can be like uh, four hundred dollars, very very cheap. Uh, and if people are not religious, they don't care, right? So cremation is very popular, and unfortunately, even among the Jewish community. Now, I'm sure you know this already, that cremation is forbidden according to halacha. Again, what happened in the concentration camps is what the Nazis did to us. So obviously, that's not a sin on the part of the victims, and they go to Olam Haba. But if a person on his own decides, I want to be cremated, that is a very, very great sin, because the Torah says at the beginning of the Torah that we came from the dust, and we must return to the dust. The body, in fact, uh, ideally, burial shouldn't even be in a coffin. If you've ever been to a cemetery in Israel, and if you've noticed it, uh, Bodies are not buried in a coffin. The body is put directly, the body is put, in its, uh, if it's a man, it's a talus, a woman is in white uh, shrouds. The body is put directly in the ground. And that's the way it should be. Now, in America, that very rarely gets done because it's against the law. They're worried about contamination. Say again? In the United States? Well, sometimes, but sometimes, sometimes they have to have they have to have a bottom. What they do is they put, they have to keep the bottom, but they put dirt. They put in the, dirt in the bottom of the coffin, so the body is resting right. on on dirt. Uh, if you can slide the bottom, that's good. But but a lot of times they cannot. It's against the law. All right, so it's not, if somebody's not watching, they'll do it. But uh, it, is, it is against the law Muslim because of contamination. Say again. Muslim is not even in a, in a wrapped. Yeah. Well. Uh, well, well, I mean, halakhically, the, the, the body is supposed to be wrapped in shrouds. You know, right. you know, no, yeah. I mean, you're saying that they don't always do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah but that, wasn't that right. something that, like, the Bahan put in afterwards, like, after, like, one of the days of were destroyed so that everyone had, like, equal... Well, well the way it worked was this. Originally, 
people would get buried in whatever clothing they liked. So if you were wealthy, you could wear your tuxedo or a fancy dress or something. And Robin Gamliel enacted that everybody should be uniform. And that's why we have a simple coffin. And there was originally people, if you could afford a uh, really, really fancy coffin, you could have one. Uh, yeah, you're 100% correct. But, but, but since the time of the, uh, the end of the Second Temple, yeah. uh, we do have this uniform uh, thing. But cremation, in any event, is a very big, is a very big sin. And according to halacha, uh, if someone decided to be cremated, we do not sit shiva for them, we do not say kaddish for them, and the like. But as I say, practically, we, we often do, because if people weren't raised to know this halacha, and they don't know how important it is, so they're not considered to be uh, rebelling. But people often ask me, what if uh, someone has a parent, and the parent is on their deathbed, and the parent tells you, this is my last wish, that I be cremated and my ashes be thrown over the ocean, whatever, that I love so much. And let's say you're a religious observant Jew. Uh, what are you supposed to do? Are you allowed, well, a few, two, two questions. Are you allowed to say to the mother, yes, I will do it, and then don't do it? Or once you promise, you have to do it? Or you should say, I can't promise? It's a complicated thing, but I can tell you this. The bottom line is, you are allowed to say to the, pe to the dying person whatever will make them feel better, and then you are to ignore their dying wish. After. And I know that some people think that sounds awful, 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 but here's the point. Once the person dies and their soul is with Hashem, they will be very, very happy that you're not listening to their last wish because they know now in the world of truth that this is not the right thing to do and this could have very drastic consequences. So this concept that people feel emotionally, how can I deny my parents their last wish? That's a very powerful emotional thing. But you have to kind of overcome that because that their wish then is not what they really want now. Again, you have to believe this, but if you believe in the Torah, you believe that their statement that they want to be cremated is not what they would want if they could be asked at this particular moment. So what I tell people, again, you may hate me for this, I say, you know, promise, swear on a Sefer Torah, uh, say whatever you want to say so they will feel okay. You don't have to argue with them. I mean, if you can talk to them about it, convince them, that would be the best thing. That would be the best thing. But you don't have to say, I refuse, and agitate them and upset them. But at the end of the day, you don't have to listen. And uh, the mitzvah of honoring your parents never applies when your parents are telling you to do something that's against the Torah. Is it an illegal thing, what the person decides to be buried, how they want to be buried? Like, really your choice to make? Well, well it depends on the situation. If, if they wrote a, okay, you're correct. It is actually their decision. But I will tell you that uh, if they're dead and the, and the remaining family wants to do it a different way, the undertakers will follow the family. That, that's how it always works, because who's going to complain? No, the will. Uh, well, I tell you, even with the will, because the point is, dead people are not going to take them to court. Life people might. Now, where you have a problem is this. But I'll tell you where you'll have a problem. And this is a problem that happens all the time. Let's say you have two siblings. Or, you know, one is religious, one is not. And mom left instructions to be cremated. So if, if you're the religious one and you're the only one there, okay, make your decision according to halacha. But if you have the other sibling, the other sibling is going to demand that their mother's wishes be carried out. 
And legally. And, le and legally, they're going to win because if, the, if there's a will or whatever it is, they are going to win. So under those circumstances, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you try to convince, you try to argue, you try to discuss. Uh, there are resources you can go to. But that's where you're going to be in trouble. But I can tell you that if you are the only relative alive who's involved in this, even a will is not going to really inhibit you that much because uh, who's going to complain? <laughs> There's nobody around yeah. to complain. If nobody's around, well, the, lawyer, the lawyer on his own is not going to complain. <laughs> I mean, he got paid, he's, he's happy. Um, so uh, the problem is going to be when you have either a spouse or other siblings or, or, or family members, that's when it may be not, not in your hands. But as I say, bottom line is, even when there is a cremation that shouldn't have taken place, we generally will sit shiva because we understand that uh, people di didn't, didn't understand how important it was. So essentially what this means is, it's an interesting sociological uh, discussion of how this impacts on halacha, and that is, as more and more of the Jewish people get further and further away from mitzvot, people who are not doing mitzvot are not characterized in such a negative way as it used to be, because they're simply victims of the circumstances. This is often encapsulated in a phrase, you may have heard, called Tinok Shanishba. Tinok Shanishba is a paradigmatic case of a child who was kidnapped as an infant and raised in Africa. So we never heard about Shabbos, never heard about kosher. So they're not considered to be sinners because they just didn't know any of this stuff. So today, even though most non-religious Jews were not kidnapped as babies, but they are spiritually like Tinok Shanishba, and as a result, we treat uh, the individual person who doesn't keep halacha in a much more tolerant way. Again, this is, I mean, this is, has always been the Chabad uh, derech, and uh, it's largely based on the fact that you know, when you have such widespread abysmal ignorance, you can't really blame people for what they don't do. It's not the same thing. Let me give you another example where this comes up. Again, I'm sorry I'm going from topic to topic, but they are, they are connected. Uh, we know, of course, wine. Wine that is handled by a non-Jew becomes treif. Right? Uh, this is a rabbinic decree because uh, wine is conducive to social relationships, and uh, I drink the wine in the guy touched, I might come to marry, whatever. So it's a long-term issue. Now, we do know that does not apply if the wine was cooked like pasteurized. So that's why it's always better to buy wine that's uh, called mavushal, because that way if a non-Jew handles it, there's no problem. Uh, that's yayin mavushal. Grape juice, for example, is pasteurized. That's why it's not, uh, it's not forbidden. But it's also the case that if a person violates Shabbos publicly, they are treated like a non-Jew, and the wine they handle is forbidden. So, the interesting question is, unless it's Mavushal. So the interesting question is, how do I apply that rule today to non-Jewish, uh, not, not non-Jewish, non-religious parents, relatives, friends? So again, if you have Mavushal, you're safe. <laughs> Mavushal avoids all the problems. But let's assume you don't have Mavushal. Some people are uh, aficionados of wine, I am not. And they claim that non-mavushal wine is much better than mavushal wine. So you want to have the fancy stuff. So here there's an old psaq that says that today most non-religious Jews are treated like babies that were raised in captivity 
and we don't treat them like non-Jews. And if they touch the wine or handle the wine, the wine is permitted. Now, it might be different if you had a person who was raised religious and rebelled. Maybe we would be strict on that. But the typical Jew that just didn't have that background is not going to be fully responsible. So that's another example where, as something gets so commonplace, unfortunately, the, the sinner is less condemned for his violations because that's part of the society. That's I mean, well, uh, as everything is a machlokas, meaning to say many rabbis in Israel are strict on this. They are very strict on this. Uh, but in America, uh, most rabbanim are lenient on it. And uh, they do say that the wine is good. I know in my own yeshiva, my yeshiva was Sameach. You may refer to Sameach. A lot of our students are not yet religious. Some do not. Huh? Then he. Oh, okay, very good. And uh, some of them do not keep Shabbos. And uh, sometimes we have some big fancy event, which has a lot of wine that was not mavushal because they want to have the best wine. And uh, the psak of our yeshiva is that we say that if these kids didn't have the background, they weren't raised with Shabbos, therefore they are not rebellious. And the other way around, the fact that they're coming to learn about Judaism means they want to move in the direction of the Torah. So in such a situation, we permit the wine to be drunk. Right? So this is the uh, general psak in America and in many Balshuva institutions. Uh, but I have to be honest, uh, there are many poskim in Israel who are very strict on this. Yeah. What if they didn't just not know better, but they themselves like converted to a different religion and practiced it? Like they're still... Yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, Judaism does not recognize the possibility of a conversion to another religion. And therefore, even if a person says they practice Christianity, they are simply treated as a Jew who's not following the Torah, and we would apply the same paradigm we would apply to any non-religious Jew. And if you're Mekel, if you're lenient, based on the fact that he didn't have the upbringing, you would be lenient even there. Uh, as opposed to a real non-Jew, there there's no leniency. If a real non-Jew touches the wine, you're in trouble. Uh, there's no leniency uh, for a non-Jew. This is only a leniency for a non-religious Jew, but that even includes a convert, so-called so convert to Christianity. Yeah. Would that um, include somebody who's like, mother is not Jewish, father is, and they're converting? Okay, so that's very different. That's very different. Um, the mother is non-Jewish, yeah. so the child is a, a non-Jew. Yeah. Now, he's converting to what? To Judaism? Or to Judaism? Well, well, one second. Once he converts to Judaism, yeah, then he's fine. But until he converts, he is a non-Jew. And, and, and if he touches the wine, it's going to be forbidden. That's correct. In fact, you can even ask an interesting Shaila, it might even be forbidden to him. Meaning, if he's a non-Jew, right, mm -hmm. and he has a bottle of wine in his refrigerator, mm -hmm. and uh, he, goes to the, he, he goes to convert Monday morning, and he comes back home, uh, his own wine might be traced. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he may have to pour out his own bottle, because now he's a Jew, and he's not allowed to drink the wine that a non-Jew touched, and he was the non-Jew who touched it. <laughs> uh, that's not so clear, but, but at least that's a possibility that he, that he might uh, not, not be allowed to drink his, own, uh, drink his own wine. Okay? Again, the purpose of all of these examples I'm giving you really is kind of uh, almost a sociological uh, essay on how widespread non-observance 
kind of removes some of the stigmas we put on people who are non-observant because they're kind of victimized by society and, uh, and, 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 and the like. Okay, but now let's get back to suicide, okay? Uh, and so the basic, the basic lesson is pretty simple. Su yeah, suicide is forbidden, okay? Uh, so now let's talk about a few examples in the Bible, in the Tanakh, where there seems to have been suicide. The most famous example is at the end of the book of, Sh of Shmuel, Shmuel Aleph. Remember there was King Shaul. Shaul HaMelech was the first king of Israel. And Shaul uh, wanted to communicate with Shmuel after Shmuel died. He brought Shmuel up from the dead or he went to a sorceress, a witch, to do it, which was not allowed. And Shmuel told him, tomorrow you're going to be with me, meaning you're going to get killed in a battle with the Philistines. And mentions that Shaul was pierced uh, by the Philistine arrows. And as he was dying, he was dying, he said to his arms bearer, right, the guy that would carry his weapons, please finish me off so I shouldn't suffer anymore. And the arms bearer refused to touch him. So it says, Shaul took his own sword and he killed himself. Shaul killed himself. That is what is recorded at the end of the book of Shemuel. So the question is, how do we understand the suicide of Shaul. Now, an earlier example is Shimshon. Remember Shimshon, Samson, one of the great judge, the uh, kind of our Superman judge? And uh, because uh, his strength was because he was a Nazir, so as long as his hair grew, he had strength. And uh, the woman Delilah uh, knew that, and she was working for the Pelishtim, the Philistines. She cut off his hair. He was powerless. He was taken to the Philistines. They chained him up. They mocked him. They made fun of him. And he asked Hashem for one more uh, infusion of strength. And he pulled the pillars of the whole palace. And the roof fell on himself and all the Philistines. And he killed all of the Philistine army, or at least all of uh, the nobles and the, uh, the the officials, and that. But he killed himself. Of course, he committed. He essentially took his life by pulling down the palace. So, the two instances of suicide that is recorded in Tanakh are the suicide of Shimshon and the suicide of Shaul Hamelech later. And how do we understand this? So, so, let me first talk about Shaul, then I'll go back and talk about Shimshon. So, there are a few ways of understanding the Shaul suicide. Understanding number one is, who says it was halakhically permitted? Shaul was suffering, Shaul had great depression, Shaul had great despair. So, like we said before, a person who takes his life under those circumstances is not responsible for his action, but it's not a legitimate action. Meaning, yeah, God is not going to hold him responsible, God's not going to punish him for it, maybe, but that doesn't mean it's mutter. It has no halakhic justification. He shouldn't have done it. That's answer number one. And even though he was a great tzaddik, but uh, he was overwhelmed by the pain that he was suffering. Okay, that's answer number one. Answer number two uh, is this. Shaul was afraid that the Philistines would capture him alive, and they would mock him, and they would parade him. And he was afraid 
that they would torture him until he would worship their idols and their gods. Now let's think about this for a moment. We mentioned last week, and I even mentioned today, that the halacha is you must give up your life before you worship idols. Meaning if someone goes over to you and says, worship that idol or I'll kill you, you must be willing to be killed. And it's not just idols, but you know, convert to Christianity or I'll kill you, you must be willing to die. You must be willing to die. Islam is an interesting question, uh, because Islam is monotheistic, but still, since Islam is a renunciation of Judaism, many would say you must die before you affirm Islam. Now here's the question. So clearly, if somebody goes over to me and says, convert or I'll kill you, I have to say I'm not converting, and what happens, happens. But what about this? What about if I say no, they're going to torture me? And I'm afraid that in the course of the torture, it'll be so excruciating that I am going to break down. Am I allowed, or even obligated, to kill myself, take a suicide pill, whatever it is, in order not to be forced via torture to worship idolatry or to renounce Judaism? Now, it's an interesting question, because on one hand, you have to be willing to give your life. But is that the same as taking your life? It's one thing to say, I have to let that person kill me. But do I kill myself? So there are opinions that actually say that since you're supposed to die before doing idolatry, if you are afraid that the torture is going to break you, it is actually proper to take your own life. That's a form of religious martyrdom, al-Kiddush Hashem. So if Shaul was afraid, this is an interpretation, that he would be tortured and he would break down and worship idolatry, his suicide would be in order not to, be, not to commit the sin of idolatry. By the way, just as a little aside, let me um, raise an interesting question about the Holocaust. There were many Jews who managed to save their lives during the Holocaust by masquerading as non-Jews. They had papers that said Roman Catholic, whatever it is in German. Or some of them even dressed like clergy, Christian clergy, with a cross and the like. And these are, some of these were religious Jews, Jews who were halakhically observant. But they saved their lives by saying, I'm Christian. Now, here's a question. If I'm supposed to give up my life before I become a Christian, because that's treated like idolatry, then how, how could it be that I'm allowed to save my life by impersonating myself as a Christian, shouldn't I take the halachic position? I'm not allowed to say I'm a Christian, even if it'll save my life. I have to let myself be killed by the Nazis. So what's the heter? What is the dispensation for impersonation or disguise? Yeah. So if you didn't mean it, like it didn't come. 
But you know, but if you think about that, anytime somebody puts a, a, a knife to me, somebody puts a knife to me and says, convert to Christianity or I'll kill you, and you say, I convert. I mean, you obviously don't mean it because you're, so you never mean it, but you still have to not say it. Yeah, but that situation, it wasn't, a, it wasn't about, it wasn't about religion, it was more about culture. Okay, so, so, so yeah, I, I, think, I think you both have a good point, yeah. I think it's about making a parish Yes. Like oh, that's, okay. that's, why that's correct. So, so how could you impersonate? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. But you're saying it was allowed in the Holocaust? Well, I'm going to try to explain why. Yeah, the bottom line is it was allowed. People did it. The, the halacha differentiates between what you might call renouncing my Judaism and making believe I never was Jewish. Meaning, the din that I have to die is when the persecutor knows I'm Jewish and is telling me to renounce it. So then I must, I must die before I renounce. But you see, you see, with, with Hitler, renouncing Judaism didn't help you. I mean, even if you said you were, if, if they knew you were, if the Nazis knew you were Jewish, even if you would convert to Christianity, you would go to a concentration camp. So you're not saying I'm Jewish and I'm turning my back on it. You're saying, I'm not, I was never Jewish. So that's not a renunciation. I mean, the Kiddush Hashem is saying, I will not turn my back on Judaism, even if I die. But impersonation is a different situation because you're saying you never were Jewish to begin with. Uh, and that was said to be permitted uh, to save your life. Yeah. Does it say, can you say the same about the Inquisition? Because that was really more of a religious persecution, but a lot of people pretended they weren't Jewish in order to get away from it. Yeah, yeah, so let's, yeah, so let's talk about the, the, the Inquisition. The Inquisition was in the uh, 1400s, 1492. Yeah. And there, unfortunately, uh, there was no hedger, uh, meaning to say the following. Uh, since the Inquisition was specifically directed against the Jewish religion, not the Jewish people, mm -hmm. uh, and you had to declare openly that you were a Christian, so even if you kept the commandments privately, like the so-called Muranos or Anusim uh, did, uh, halakhically you were obligated to give up your life. Halakhically, uh, now again, I want to clarify something that Maimonides says much earlier. Halakhically, you're supposed to give up your life, but if you don't, you are still considered a Jew in good standing, meaning the Muranos, Actually, I say Murano's, no. The, the community does not like the word Murano. Murano actually means pigs. It was a derogatory term that the Spanish Christians used, uh, so it entered popular speech. But uh, we should refer to the Jews of Spain as Anusim, those who were forced to convert. So we do not look down at them. They're still Jews and the like. But, but the halakha was they should have given up their life. Wait, uh, the halakha would only apply, though, if they were specifically asked. If they had one day they been like, we're looking at Christians house, no one ever asked us, what did they issue? That's Second, I didn't hear. Say again, if what? The, if they had, there was a family that knew they were going to be asked or something, so they avoided that and they just... Did it ahead acted, of time? Acted, acted Christian, that's fine. It's only if they're actively being asked, give up Judaism or convert, no? Well, it really depends what you mean, act, act, act Christian, meaning if, if they have to go to church and, and right. you know, so in a sense, even if you don't say the words, if you're doing Christian worship activities. Right, but no one's asking you to renounce Judaism. Well, in a well, in a sense, though, uh, but you're, you're you're you are renounced. In other words, no one asks you. You maybe it's worse. You're doing it on your own. <laughs> you're renouncing on your own. Yeah. What about in the instance that, like, God forbid, someone is 
like a murderer comes into your house and you hide your kids in the closet, right? And the murderer is only after you, but you don't know that for yeah, yeah, reason. yeah. And like, you know, your kids are probably safe. They're locked in the closet. He doesn't know that they even exist. Yeah. And he's like, renounce Judaism or like, I'll kill you. Like, can you can you say like I can you not can you renounce it for the sake of you think that there's a possibility he'll get to your kids? Yeah, yeah. I, I, or like, we'll get to your neighbor. Listen, these are really, 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 really tragic, yeah. tragic situations. But it seems, according to halacha, you you could not renounce Judaism in that case, and then you you have to hope that Hashem in His mercy will take care of your family. Well, what if you're like with your kids sitting right here, and He knows they're in the closet? Like, what if you're like sitting right next to your daughter? You still can't like say. Now there is there, there is a response of the Rambam, which is not in the Mishnah Torah who does say, this would change a lot of things, that if it's just a verbal profession and they know you don't mean it, mm-hmm. as you said, the Rambam does say that you don't have to give up your life for that. But that seems to be, so that would apply in your case too. Uh, but I have to say the Rambam's halakhic position there is very, very doubtful. It doesn't seem to be accepted and the Rambam in his code does not bring it. It's, it's in a letter, right? Mm-hmm. But so, so these. Well, no, because the same way you have to give up your life, you have to let even other people die before you do it, right? So uh, it's a very. You know, listen, I I I I know emotionally how hard this is, but but uh, but but you know, essentially, uh, this is the duty of martyrdom. So just going back to Shaul, I'll get you in a second. Just going back to Shaul. So this is answer number two, meaning Shaul took his life in order not to be compelled to worship Avodah And I want to point out that during the Crusades, when Jews were subject to forced conversion, and they were afraid that they might be tortured to, be- to profess belief in Jesus, there were Jewish communities that committed suicides. Wow. Uh, if you look on Tisha B'av, uh, most of the Kinos, we have a lot of Kinos. Does Chabad say Kinos? I don't know if they yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, most of the keynotes are about the Beis Hamikdash, but there are actually some keynotes about uh, the Crusades and the suicides that Jewish people uh, did during the Crusades. And it's based on the idea that if they felt that the torture would break them, they took their lives ahead of time. What's a bigger chiddush is that there was some uh, in- indications of parents killing their children. Uh, now that already. That's a huge, that's correct, that's a huge jump. That's a huge jump. Because even if you allow me to take my life, that doesn't, what's, what's the hedger I have to take somebody else's life? Did you want to say? So what if you were like nine months pregnant when somebody, like you're about to give birth and somebody issues this, I'll kill you. <laughs> Does the fact that like, it's not just you yeah. that's gonna go, I know, I, I understand. But again, uh, in the case that was raised, even if you have children in the closet, you'd have to give up your life. So how much more so for an unborn, an unborn fetus? Yeah, listen, I, 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 I know, you know, I, I mean, remember what the Rambam says. The Rambam that I mentioned before says, if you fail to give up your life, you committed a sin, but you're still a Jew in good standing. So the Rambam understands that sometimes it's too much of a sacrifice for me to make. But once again, the halacha is the halacha, and then we have kind of mitigating, extenuating circumstances after after the fact. Yeah. And I, I just want to say what Jamie and Julianne were saying that um, 
we're, we're told that even if someone's in a situation and they, like you said, they fail to say kill me, which and you're not allowed to judge such a person. Yes. And they're still considered like. Yes. Like I'm saying, if yeah, none of us ever be in a situation, but if you can't bring yourself to say kill me because you have kids or yes. even yes. just yourself. You're, you're still a hundred percent. In fact, the Rambam, when the Rambam wrote this letter about martyrdom, the Rambam was responding to a rabbi who told people who converted to Islam externally because they were afraid they would be killed. The rabbi told them, this rabbi in Yemen told them, you're not Jewish anymore. God doesn't want your commandments. Your mitzvahs are worthless. Uh, you have no value in Hashem's eyes because you didn't give your life when you should have given your life. That's what that rabbi said. That's what the rabbi said. And the Rambam's anger in the letter, you know, it scares me to read it. The Rambam's anger at that rabbi was so intense where the Rambam said, how dare you look at people who are trying to serve Hashem and just couldn't give up their lives. How dare you condemn them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Rambam makes the point 100%. But again, you have to have a double, a double track of thinking here. The halacha says you must give up your life. It does say that. It doesn't change it. But if after the fact I fail to live up, that's not something I could be judged or condemned for because it is a sacrifice that not everybody is able to, to make. Although, let me remind you of the very famous, you probably learned it already, the very famous passage of the Alter Rebbe in the Tanya, where he does indeed talk about the fact that uh, because of the godly soul and the hidden love that is within every uh, neshama of a Jew, even Jews who are very far from Torah yeah. will be prepared to give up, right, did you learn that? Will be prepared yeah. often to give up their lives. Uh, for Hashem. So he actually makes the point that Jews are gonna, often going to be able to do it, but not, not 100% of the time. So that's going to be the situation. I don't know, I just I feel like, personally, when I was just saying to Julia, I'm like, maybe for myself I could, but if my family was on the line, I don't think I could. Not at all. Like, for sure not. Well, listen, I, I, I understand. I, 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 can't, I can't sit in judgment, and, and I'll, I, I tell you the truth, I don't know what I would do. I, I can't put myself on a pedestal there either. Uh, but, you know, you sometimes have to have a perspective that there is this world and there's a world to come and the world to come is eternal and uh, even if there is suffering and devastation in this world but then there is an eternal reward that comes afterwards. Uh, did I tell you the story? Maybe you heard the story. I think I may have mentioned it last week. I don't remember. But, um, but the Friedrich Rebbe was having a Purim, uh, a Purim meal in, in the middle of uh, Moscow. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, he was and there were like informers, there were communist informers there. And the Rebbe started talking about uh, the communists, how bad they were, and we have to fight them, we have to... And they were telling the Rebbe that you should uh, don't, uh, don't talk in front of uh, these informers. And the Rebbe opened up his shirt and he said, he can kill me right now, I don't care. He says, I, if I die, I'll kill Hashem. I die al Kiddush Hashem. And uh, another time when a KGB, you know, the secret police, held a gun. I mean, the Friedrich Rebbe was imprisoned and he went through many, many things with the Stalinist uh, Russia. Uh, he said, your gun scares a person who only believes in one world, in many gods and one world. 
but I believe in one God and two worlds, Olam Hazah and Olam Abba. If you believe in one God and two worlds, he says, your gun does not scare me. It's a man of tremendous courage. Uh, he said, the gun doesn't scare me because I, I believe in Olam Abba and I believe in one God. So when God said I have to be willing to give my life, I will give my life. You know? So, you know, can all of us always be in that level? No, the answer is no. But 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 you think about the role models who were on that madrega, and that could give us uh, a lot of a lot of strength and a lot of uh, a lot of chizuk. Okay. So so far, going back to the main topic, so I gave you two interpretations of Shaul. One is he was depressed and therefore he's not responsible for what he did, but he shouldn't have done it. The other is he took his life to avoid torture for avodah zara which means it was a form of Kiddush Hashem. Let me give you a third interpretation. Shaul was afraid he would be paraded. Now remember, the Jewish army is fighting the Philistines. Now, what is the impact on combat morale if they see their king and their leader paraded by the enemy and humiliated? That has a devastating impact on the morale of the army. And that could contribute to the defeat and the death of the Jewish army. Now, keep in mind, every soldier in an army is risking his life to protect the military objective, to protect other people. So perhaps we could say this. Shaul killed himself in order to prevent the Jewish army from being defeated. It was like a military sacrifice. It was like a soldier who sacrifices himself in battle to maximize the victory of the rest of the army. Because if he would have been paraded alive, the Jewish army would be demoralized. Now, that's a very interesting issue as well, because maybe it's apples and oranges. I agree that a soldier can risk his life to help others. But is he allowed to take his life to help others? Let's consider this. Let's consider the soldier, or even not the soldier, who jumps on a grenade. Let's imagine you have a, I mean, this happens in Israel. Right, right. Somebody, you know, a terrorist or an enemy throws a grenade into a room. If the grenade goes off, Maybe 100 people might die. But if somebody, so this soldier, or even a non-soldier, right, these are such hard cases, jumps on the grenade. So it cushions, he cushions it. So he absorbs the whole explosion. He is committing suicide. He is deliberately jumping on a grenade. But he's doing it in order to save other people's lives. Are you allowed to do that? Again, machlokas, but some would say yes. Some would say, see, you couldn't do that for idolatry. Don't, don't confuse it. You know, there's somebody says, worship idols, you can't do that to save other people's lives. But, but taking your life is different because here I'm taking my life in order to save many other lives. So according to this, we could justify Shaul as a military sacrifice for the pikuach nefesh of the Jewish army. So we have three in different interpretations of Shaul's suicide. One was 
he was depressed and it wasn't right, but he's not accountable for what he did. The other was religious martyrdom al Kiddush Hashem, that he shouldn't be tortured to do Avodah Zarah. And the third is military sacrifice of his life in order that he shouldn't be mocked, which might result in the Jewish army being defeated and many Jews being killed. By the way, that third rationale, if I could go back, is probably the explanation of Shimshon's sacrifice. Remember Shimshon pulled down the palace? Now, he committed suicide, but he did so to kill the enemies that were killing the Jewish people. So he did it to save other lives. That would be the explanation of the Shimshon sacrifice. Yeah. So, sorry, I don't know if you touched on this at all. Yeah. But if there was a situation where, like, I don't know if you're like the leader of a group or something, and somebody says, you convert, or I'm going to kill all of them. Not you, they're not risking your life, but they're saying that if you don't do it, then they're going to kill everybody else. Yep. Then... Yeah, I, I believe you don't have that. I, I believe even then. It's not just you must give your life, but you cannot try to save lives by converting. But murder is a little different because murder, the, the problem is murder, so you're taking your life to save. Now, it's interesting. We only say that by suicide, not by murder, mamish. I mean, if I, if I tell you, kill this guy or I'll kill 100 people, you cannot kill the guy. But you can take your life to save the other people. So that's an interesting difference there. Why would there be a difference is not so clear. Okay, so these are three interpretations of Shaul, and the third interpretation is the Shimshon story. So now I'm going to give you a fourth interpretation. Yeah. Um, you know the story of Sulika? Sulika? Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not sure. Where is that? Because, you know, it's just in history, the rabbis told her, well, someone helped you know, wrong. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll check it. But you, what she, you was, she was um, forced, whatever, she was forced to marry, I don't know who was, a, it was in more, it was some more sparty place. And yeah. It was, he was Arab. He, he was, was Arab, and yeah. she basically had to awesome. convert. She said, I'm not converting. And they just said, if you don't convert, I'm going to like kill everyone. And the rabbis told her that she could convert. And the story ended up that she didn't, and whatever, she became like this big hero. But the rabbis told her she can convert. That if, if, the, if everyone's at risk, wow. that she can fake her convert. No, because she can, like, maybe it's different because it's Islam, so she can, like. It could. Maybe they were following the Rambam's letter, which is not the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah. Mm -hmm. The Rambam did say the fake conversion to Islam, which is monotheistic. Uh, maybe. maybe. I'll, I'll check it. Sulika. Uh, it's not, so it's not. So it's from the Middle Ages. She did it's, it at the end, she it's not a story in the Gemara or anything. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, no, because no, no, because it's still a renunciation. Meaning, you're, you're Jewish no matter what you do, but by saying you you're, you're Christian, you're not, you don't become Christian. It's, it's true. Not you're not changing. Yeah. You're 100 correct. But you are saying that as far as you're concerned, you're renouncing it. So no it's a question of what you're saying. Okay. So it sounds like this is more for in terms of like what other people are going to like. A lot of it is because yeah. remember the operative principle here is called Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem is to sanctify God's name. And that's primarily in the impact you're having on other people. Right. So that's a very critical idea. Yeah. 
So now let me mention a fourth interpretation, which actually is the most relevant for medical ethics and the most controversial. And here I have to give you a little bibliographical history. Very, very fascinating bibliographical history. Uh, one of the greatest, greatest rabbis of the Middle Ages was Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel. He's called the Rush. Resh Aleph apostrophe Shin, Rabbeinu Asher. I don't know if you've heard of Rabbeinu Asher, but he's one of the great, great uh, poskim. In fact, his code of law is on the back of every tractate of the Talmud. And his son wrote the Torah. Rabbi Yaakov wrote the Torah, which is the predecessor of the Shulchan Aruch, and it's based on the halachic decision-making of the, of the Rush. So the Rush was really, really very, very, very great. And uh, in addition to his code, which is in the back of every Gemara, he also wrote uh, responsa, shuvos. And we have the Rush. Now, around 250 years ago, the Rush goes all the way back to the 1300s, but around 250 years ago, somebody claimed to have discovered a long-lost manuscript of chuvos of the Rush that were never published before. Now, if that would be true, that would be really, really important. Finding something from the Rush would be like, you know, like jewels, halachically. And uh, the, these responses were printed, and they are called Bissamim Rosh. Bissamim Rosh is a phrase in the Torah that means choices of spices. So since Rosh and Rush are the same words, Bissamim Rosh means pieces of the Rush. Bissamim Rosh. Now, in Bissamim Rosh, there is a chuba about suicide. And what is written in that shuba is the following. Listen to this. It's mamish, the defense of what we do Since Shaul was dying anyway, he was in what you call a terminal condition. His death would be coming anyway, even if he didn't do anything. And he is suffering excruciating pain, physical pain. The Bissamim Rosh says, a terminally ill patient is allowed to take their life if they are suffering excruciating untreatable pain. We do not, yeah, 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 no. In other words, it's not because of martyrdom, it's not because of idolatry, it's not because you can save people. It's simply a hacker that colonel illness condition <laughs> coupled with untreatable pain allows you to take your life. Now, if we follow that, that would actually lend support for, for assisted suicides as it's done today. However, here I have to give you some bibliographical history. It turned out that the Bissamim Rosh was a forgery. It was not of the Rosh at all. There was a rabbi, Rabbi Shaul Berlin, who published it, it was from a long lost manuscript, and that's made up. Uh, this is what you call reverse plagiarism. Right? When I, take, I say something that's from you, I say money. This is the opposite. I say something from me, I do it in the name of Great Battle. But people did that. In fact, you write a whole book on interesting forms in Judaism. There have been forms that have been forged. Now, obviously, if God were given such a psak, it would have enormous weight. But in forgery, it doesn't count. And as I said, we do not, we do not follow that. So do not walk away uh, with this psak. This is not the halacha. But it is interesting there is such an opinion, at least in a favor of how do postgim deal with it? Some postgim don't look at it at all. They say it's a forgery, therefore it's worthless. Others say, even if it's a forgery, he makes halachic arguments. So why can't we look at it? In other words, so there are rabbis who will use it as a halachic source 
but they will not use it with the authority of the Rush. Ravaji Yosef, the great, great Sephardic uh, Posek, who had really a phenomenal, I mean, a phenomenal mastery, thousands of volumes of responsive literature. He uses the he, he uses the even though he would say, I know it's not the Rush, I know it's not that, but I'll use it as authority because he makes halakhic arguments. Okay, so these are the issues about physician assisted suicide. But I don't know if anyone should know. Uh, Canada, the Canadian Supreme Court said that the right to assisted suicide is a constitutional right. That means even if a province would want to outlaw it, they cannot. Meaning in Canada, a patient is guaranteed the right to assisted suicide. That's not true in the United States. In the United States, the way it works is it's done state by state. A state can allow it or a state can prohibit it. To date, most states do not allow it. Two states permitted it. In Canada, every province in Canada must allow it because it's treated as a fundamental right under the Canadian constitutions. That, that's uh, very, very interesting. It's an example of Canada being much more liberal than, uh, than even the United States. Okay. Alrighty. It'd be well, everybody, and take care, and uh, have a good week. Thank you. Thank you.